Well, this weekend, a lot of us were excited because football began. College football and this, this Thursday, professional football. And, and I know for many of us, it occupies a, a pretty significant place of our lives. And we'll see jerseys on people this this coming season, cheering on their favorite teams. And it, I, I think the Broncos have a, have a great team. But, but my heart goes back to my home state. I'm just loyal to my home state. So I'm, they did that last service too, these subtle, evil boos. <laughs> 2010, the Packers were just having a pretty rough year and didn't look like they were going to make the playoffs. It was a little after Christmas of that year, and our family was back in Wisconsin. I went to uh, J.C. Penney's, and they were getting rid of some of their Packer paraphernalia. And they had these little gnomes, like on discount, like, it's a bad year. We're just getting rid of everything. So it was like four bucks. I said, I'm getting one of those things. I mean, maybe next year they'll do well, and I could have this. So I went home the next Sunday, and he watched the game with us, and they won. (laughs) Last game of the season. The, the, the way it all worked out was if they win the last game of the season, they actually squeak into the playoffs as the, as the wild card team. So the gnome watches the game with us. They beat the Chicago Bears. They make it to the, the playoffs. Go into the playoffs. They win their first game with the gnome watching with our family. They win the second game of the playoffs. The third game, they win the Super Bowl. The gnome is going crazy. I mean, it's an incredible year. <clears throat> so September comes around. I said, you know what? That was such a good ending to last year. He's going to watch the games with us this year. They won every game in September. They won every game in October. They won every game in November. They won 19 straight games. Now, I'm not saying the gnome is responsible for that. But it was kind of fun having him there with me until they finally lost one game in the 2011 season. Now, my, my good friend John Morozik was jealous of my Packers gnome, so he bought himself a Bears gnome, not just a Bears gnome, but one that was twice this size, <laughs> didn't help them win a game. It was, it was horrible. He looked, I think it looked like Jay Cutler. Uh, if you... <laughs> well, he, he accused me of idol worship, that this was my little idol, and he wasn't. I'm not superstitious. Most of the time, I don't even remember this guy's in the house anymore. He doesn't even watch the games with us because I'm not as devoted to him as... Most people might think. My wife's laughing over there. <laughs> Honey, we, he didn't watch a lot of games last year, really. So today we're going to talk about idols. Well, I've been on mission trips where we've been in cultures where they actually they bow down to, to an idol. When I was in Thailand, they have, they have, I didn't know they had this, but skinny Buddha. Skinny Buddha. Not, not, not hefty Buddha. It's a skinny Buddha. And people are making offerings and placing them around the, the feet of Buddha. They're lighting candles and various things. And, and when we think of idolatry and stuff, we think of statues, we think of, we think of images that people bow before. But you're going to learn today that, that idolatry is far broader than that. If you're new to us, we're getting ready to jump into the book of Ephesians. We'll actually start in Ephesians next week. We've been in some background these first three weeks because I think it's so critical you understand the people that Paul was writing to. Because when you do, the verses of Ephesians make more sense. You understand the the spiritual climate in which he found himself in. Because it was in the early 50s of A.D. when Paul went to Ephesus on his second missionary journey. And while he was there, he, he ended up just anchoring there for a long period of time. They believe three years. And the first thing he encountered when he got there, we, we talked about this two weeks ago, he found this group of disciples that were disciples of John the Baptist. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, we never even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And it's as if Paul was saying, really, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's going to be a rough road ahead for you. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. And we learned last week why that's so critical. There is a spiritual battle all around us. And while people were casting out demons, those that were involved in sorcery and magic and all the arts got spooked. They realized that these, these books of magic and these incantations and these, these magic formulas weren't just ways of tapping into powers out there. They're actually ways of connecting with a dark and demonic power, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So they gathered all these valuable scrolls and books, and they piled them up and had a huge bonfire. It says that the value of, of those items was worth $10 million. It was incredible. But they realized, we've got, to sh- we've got to slam that door on any satanic connection. And I challenged you last week to be looking at your life and are there doors? Because those doors might be magic arts. It could be astrology. It could be addictive behaviors, pornography and drug abuse and alcohol. It could be through attitudes that are unresolved, anger, bitterness, jealousy, and envy, and all these things. These all are open doors where Satan just gets kind of a foothold in our lives, and then those footholds become strongholds, and pretty soon we fall back under the rule of the one who is the prince of this world. And the Bible is very clear that that prince is Satan. He believes this is his domain, and he's having a pretty good time with it. Look all around the world. It looks like he is reigning in so many places. Well, today we're going to look at the third story, the the final story in Acts chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Because Paul's going to go into Ephesus and cause a big disruption. But here's what I want you to listen to today before we actually read this. I really believe that today God God wants to point out something in your life that you maybe have never considered to be an idol. And that today... The Holy Spirit would reveal that to you, and you would, you, would, you would decide, God, may that never be an idol in my life again. I will, I will make a change today, whatever that change is. It may be eliminating it, removing it, stopping uh, certain behaviors, whatever it is you need to do. But, but let's pray that God would show us what that idol is today. Father, thank you for the privilege we have right now to open up your word. And, and Father, speak to us in the present. Speak to us not of the idols of Ephesus, but the idols of our hearts, that we could be cleansed of them and live fully for you and trust solely in the name of Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. It says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. That was, that was what Christianity was called back then. It was just called the way. It was, it was people on the move, people living a certain lifestyle, the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's a goddess of Ephesus, we'll learn more about her in a minute, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in the related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. This goddess, Artemis, was significant 
here uh, for the Ephesians. They had a number of gods, probably about 20 different gods, but the Artemis was, was the main player in their, in their city. People came from all over the region to come to this port city to worship the goddess Artemis, who was believed to be the twin sister of the Greek god Apollo. She was the goddess of nature, the goddess of childbirth and fertility, the goddess of the harvest. And so if you wanted your children to be blessed, if you wanted your crops to be blessed, you better be in a good standing with Artemis. Now, the the temple of Artemis was a phenomenal building. It had been built and damaged and restored a number of times. And during the time that Paul visited, it was noted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, which is about the size of one and a half football fields. That is a huge building, right? 127 60-foot columns of marble. I mean, this thing is massive, massive structure. Right in the middle of this structure was, was the inner room. This was a, 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 a chamber area where actually the worship took place because the, the religion of Artemis had priestesses and eunuchs and temple prostitutes that all served in this religion. Now, the Ephesians believed that they were given Artemis as a gift from the gods because there was a a meteorite that fell from heaven that was housed in that small chamber. It was as if the the gods had airdropped this gift to them saying, this is Diana or Artemis, and she is for you. And so they, they would guard this religion. They felt like the caretakers of Artemis. By the way, some of your Bibles might call her Diana. It's the same, same, uh, same goddess. They would have processions where they would parade the statues down the main streets. People would dance and sing and chant. People would come from all over to, to visit. They would buy the little trinkets, kind of like when you go to a Disney World or the Eiffel Tower and the little places around that will sell you small statues and small things. Well, that's what the craftsmen were making, these artifacts, these, these trinkets that people could get. There was a whole industry fueled by the worship of Artemis. In fact, it was so strong that the, the temple was the largest bank in Ephesus. If people wanted to make transactions, they went to the temple to exchange money. They were very proud of it. So you can see the disruption that Paul caused when he comes in preaching this message that, hey, hey, all those gods, all those little statues carrying around, they don't mean anything. It was losing business. People weren't visiting anymore. Cause a disruption. And you will find throughout history, wherever the gospel is preached, the gospel confronts the gods of the culture. The gospel confronts our devotion to these gods and these idols. And so we see that all through the Old Testament that that God has selected a people, the people of Israel. He reveals himself as the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet they get into captivity in Egypt, a place that's filled with a plethora of gods. I mean, the the wind is a god, and the river is a god, and and scarab beetles are gods. And there's there's gods and goddesses of war and justice and fertility and and everything you can think of, there is a god or goddess related to it. And so when they, they were in Egypt for hundreds of years and God rescues them through Moses, they go into the desert and the very first thing that God does is he delivers them 10 commandments. And the very first commandment says this, found in Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God. By the way, if you notice that the, the title Lord is in all caps, if you were here for a sermon series earlier in the year, I mentioned to you, wherever you see the Lord in all caps, that is the, the name Yahweh, the name that is, that, that is the I am. And so what he's saying is, I am the I am. 
your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall, shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Why? I delivered you. They didn't. Martin Luther says that, he's a great reformer, said that every violation of the other commandment go, commandments goes back to the violation of the first one. And you really think about it. Murder and envy and deceitfulness are all because we value something highly in our lives. I remember when I was in high school and worked at, a, at, a, at the department store Kmart. And I was making minimum wage. They would offer on occasion a slot to work on a Sunday. You know what was very tempting about working on Sunday? Time and a half. And you know what? Uh, man, I, instead of making you know, $8 an hour, I'm going to make $12 an hour, but I'm going to miss church. You know, that was a temptation to get the money, the, the, the greater amount of money, and, and to feel like, you know, I can miss church a time or two. That was tempting. But see, what, what I would have to do is say, my love for money on Sunday is greater than my love for worshiping God. It's going to take priority on that day. And so I'd turn it down. See, every sin that we commit can usually be traced back to a God in our life. We find that, found that in the, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. He said, what, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, obey the commandments. And he lists off a few of them. And he goes, oh, I've done them all. Uh, my whole life I followed these commandments. I don't think Jesus believes them because Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man goes, oh, I can't do that. Can't do that. And it says that he, 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 he was sad and he turned and walked away. Why? Because Jesus called his bluff. You say you obey the commandments? Let's start with the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Wealth is your God. Let's challenge it. Sell it all. Follow me. I can't let go of that. Can't let go of that. See, God challenges the gods in our lives. You cannot hold on to that and hold on to God. God's too big. God takes two hands. And if you've got God in your life, you don't have room to hold on to any other gods. The gospel confronts our devotion to idols. You know what? We were made to worship. We are worshiping creatures, and we will worship something. And if it's not God, it'll be a created thing. So, so you look around and watch people worshiping the sun, worshiping the mountains, worshiping the rivers and the oceans, worshiping their children, worshiping their spouses, worshiping athletes and musicians and stars. I mean, uh, someone was pointing out to me yesterday, isn't it ironic that a professional football player can make $20 million a year, yet a public school teacher who's changing the lives of the next generation can make $45,000 a year? You know, we're just so out of bounds. We've idolized people. We even have a program, a TV show called American what? American Idol. Why? Because we're okay with idols being people. We worship people. We worship beautiful people. We worship rich people. We worship talented people. And yet God says, don't worship anything I have made because I am above all of them. I am the creator. Listen to what God said through Moses to the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy. He says to his people, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. It all, it all belongs to me. It all came from me. So why in the world would we worship the river or the mountains 
when we could be worshiping the maker of the river and the mountains. See, the Bible's very clear all through, all through from beginning to end that there is one God, one alone, one maker of all. It's called monotheism, one God. And yet many of us feel very uncomfortable holding on to that view because, well, that's, that's okay for me, but that's not, that's not okay for everybody else. I mean, maybe they've got gods that are, that are real too. Well, let me ask you, then, then which God made this earth? If it's not the God of the Bible, then, then who is it? And, and if you know who it is, go worship him. But don't, don't throw out this baloney of, of there's probably hundreds of gods that made this world. Maybe they're like a committee that was appointed to work together to make this world. Let's just say there, there were a hundred gods, and, and some are in Hindu, and some are in, in Asia, and some are in Africa. And they're all over the world, but they're all, they're all part of the same committee that was appointed to create this world. Well, you know what I want to worship? I want to worship the guy, the God that appointed the committee, the one that's above them all. See, God says, I am the creator. I am your redeemer who brought you out of Egypt. There is no other. There's no one else who made you. There's no one else who loves you enough to redeem you but me. That's why we are called to go into all these nations and disrupt the culture with the message that there is one God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. I know it sounds offensive. It sounds like Christians are are the bull in the china shop, shaking things up. But if it's true, and we do it in a heart of love, we bring people to truth and out of bondage. God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. You shall have no other gods before you. And that God can meet every need you have. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Asaph, who writes this, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What he's saying is, God, of all the things that I could have, I've got you, and that's enough. You are enough. You are the portion. You are a sufficient portion. That's all I really need. And anytime we bring a God into our lives, what we're saying is this. Jesus, you're not quite enough. Jesus, you're good. And I love you in my life, but I love you plus this. I love you plus this other thing that fulfills a void that you don't meet. And see, it brings another God into the picture and is telling our God, you can't meet my needs. You cannot satisfy me. You cannot fulfill me. And so I need, I need this, or I need that, or I need those other things to round out my life to fully satisfy me. See, idols are anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Anything. It doesn't have to be a golden calf that was made by you and your friends. It could be the career you made. It could be the reputation you spent a lifetime building. It could be your credentials. It could be your accomplishments that you've achieved. It could be the body that you've sculpted. It could be, the, it could be so many different things in our lives. It could be physical. It could be non-physical. Anything that you look to to replace a part of God in your life becomes a God. Anything. And often it's something that's very good. Good things can quickly become God things in our lives. We can begin to so appreciate the gift God has given that now we idolize that very thing. In fact, I think that's, 
the majority of the time of how we fall into idolatry. Something very good starts to occupy such a huge place in our lives. Now, to help identify gods, I want to just ask you five questions. And, and it would be important for you to write this down in your notes and review this. Because I think these point out the, the gods that we deal with. First, what is, a, what is some item that I must have? What is an item that I must have? I mean, what is that thing that if I get that thing, that car, that, that brand of clothing, that house, that job, that new cell phone, if I get that thing, I will be admired, I will be respected, I will be esteemed, I might even be envied. I will be satisfied with that item. What is that thing that you just say, I got to have it, got to have it. I, I just have to have that thing. Do you have something like that? That might very easily point out your God. This year, a brand new line of basketball shoes came out. It was designed by LeVar Ball with his three sons who are going to be future NBA players. One just got drafted this year. But the shoes start off at $495 a pair. And we're all gasping at who would spend $495 a pair. I'll tell you who. Someone who wants to be on the inner circle. Who wants to be one of those that says, I got one of them. You don't. I've got the first line of these shoes. You don't. They may not even be better shoes than the other, than Nike or Under Armour. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm on the in group. Apple's capitalized on this. Apple has such a devoted following that, that usually people who buy Apple won't buy anything else ever. Why? Because they're part of a community. They're part of the Apple community. And sometimes those things can be so appealing to us. What is the one item I must have? Here's another one. What do I depend on for significance? What is it that, that, that gives my life meaning? Could be my job. Could be the role that you play. Sometimes when you're a mother and you spend 30 years of your life raising your children, your whole identity is wrapped up in your kids. And when they graduate from high school, you don't even know who you are anymore because your identity is gone. I've known people who've worked for churches, and when they stopped working for the church, they lost their identity. They didn't know who they were. They kind of wandered and floundered because they always got to be known as pastor so-and-so or, or so-and-so at the church. But now they're, they're not that, and they feel like they're nobody. Sometimes we depend on our goals and the achievement of our goals. Kyle Eidelman in his book, uh, God's at War, says our goals can become our gods. Where we start to, to serve the goals. Instead of the goals helping us to move forward, we now serve the goals and make them succeed. How about this one? What do I obsess about? What do I obsess over? What is it that occupies my thinking through the week? Is it a TV show? Is it, is it something? Is it a relationship? About 20, 26 years ago, I got introduced to a, a game called fantasy football. And it was just starting at the time. A bunch of us on the staff of my old church joined a league. And if you don't know fantasy football, real quickly, you get to be the owner of a team. You draft players, and you score points based on how they play that week. And so you can have a player from the Broncos and a player from the Packers and a player from the the New York Giants. You you build your team, and you compete against other teams. You make trades. And, you know, I I really got into that. I mean, I I like sports, and sometimes I get kind of competitive in sports. And so here we were playing fantasy football. Man, I wanted to find an edge to beat the other players. And so I just got consumed by it. I would wake up Monday morning. This was before internet, early 90s. Wake up 4.30 on Monday morning waiting for the newspaper to come. 
because the Monday morning newspaper would have the box scores of the Sunday games that I could look through and see how my players did. And so I would sit in the kitchen just waiting for that thump in front of the door where the person had thrown the newspaper. I didn't get up at 4.30 for anything else. Not for prayer, not for quiet time, but I got up for fantasy football to know how my team did and to know what players I needed to pick up to build my team. And you know what? When we moved here, I started a league. I was a commissioner of a fantasy football league. And after a few years, I just realized, you know, this is so consuming. Almost, almost it, it, it possesses my mind too much. I'm watching games. I'm watching more games than I even want to watch on TV to see how many players and cheering for them. And I just had to quit totally, cold turkey. I said, I can't, do, I can't do this dialing down. I just have to stop it totally. If there's something you obsess over, could be, could be a TV series, it could be a sports team, could be a lot of different things. I'm just going to tell you, that's, that's a real telltale sign that you've got a God in your life. Next one, what do I lean on in times of need? What do I lean on in times of need? When I'm in a crisis, who do I call on? Obviously, we should call on the Lord, right? When you're in need, you should call on the Lord. But if he's not enough, alcohol can sure help. A little marijuana can ease the tension. A few opioids can get me over the hump. Shopping spree can sure make me feel better. When we have all these other outlets that we turn to when we say, God, you're just not enough right now. I need something else. What you lean on very possibly can reveal to you a God in your life. And finally, what do I sacrifice other things for? Religion and devotion is about sacrifices. So what do you sacrifice for to satisfy your God? If, if your God is work, say you, you find your self-esteem at work, you find validation at work, you will sacrifice your wife and kids for your job. And that means that that's now has become a God in my life because I'm sacrificing something very significant for this. When push comes to shove, what gives? Two revealing places in your life to know where, where your gods are is simply to look at your calendar and your checkbook. What dominates your time? What do, dominates your uh, expenditures? It'll probably reveal the sacrifices you're making to follow your God. I mean, where are you spending all the money? Where's it going to? What are you investing it in? Is it things of the Lord? Is it things of pleasure? Is it hobbies? Where is it? I'll just tell you quickly that there have been times in my life where I found this at work, this battle between values. For example, getting up and having a quiet time in the morning. I mean, to get up a half hour earlier to spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, means I've got to choose my devotion to God over the comfort of sleep. Because sleep feels so good. Nice warm blanket. Comfy. Can I, can I say enough's enough? I'm going to get up and, and discipline myself. Uh, another area was in finances. There are times in my life where, where this whisper in my head says, hey, you can't tithe right now. You can't give God the first 10% because you got bills to pay. And God wants you to honor the creditors. And I'd say, he does. That's absolutely true. He wants me to pay the utilities and the cable company, all these things. He wants me to pay them all. And if I have money left, then I can honor the Lord. But you know what? God began to whisper to me, pay your creditors, but stop getting into more debt. Stop creating more debts so that you cannot honor me. Get this under control. Make decisions. Sacrifice other things for me. Don't sacrifice me. Because you know what I find so often within the church? That, that we can cruise along saying God's first until something else comes along, like, like this. It's game day. 
Game day. Everything else is going to shift in my life around the game. And oftentimes we say, well, I can, I can skip church for the game. There's always church. There's only 16 games. But, but you know what you're saying when you say that? This thing is so important that everything else is going to rotate and, and flex to make this happen. Whatever it is that's, that's the rock that everything else adjusts around, it could be your relatives coming into town. It could be your grandkids. Whatever that thing is, that's, that's everything else is going to move, move. Even my devotion to God is going to adjust to make this happen. That in the middle is your God. That is our God. Our sacrifices will reveal our God. That's why when God gave this couple, Abraham and, and Sarah, they were 90 and 100 years old, gave them this gift of a child named Isaac. You can imagine the joy that Isaac brought to their lives. Yet when he was just a little man, probably, probably about middle school, God said this to Abraham. You can read it in Genesis 20, 22. I don't have time to read the whole story, but just this verse here. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. And so Abraham said, yes, Lord. I love my son. I love him very much, but I love you more. And if you require me to sacrifice him to prove it, I will. So he took his son up on this mountain, built an altar. Son had no clue what was going on until he laid his son down on the altar. Dad, what are you going to do? Going to obey the Lord, son. And he drew a knife to slay his son, and then an angel stopped him and said, Stop right there. God has provided the sacrifice. It was as if God said, I wanted you to prove that you would be willing to give up what was most precious to you for me. You know, I think of a story like that, and I think of my my grandson. And some of you know, I've got a little guy. That's won my heart. He's three years old, and I just love him to death. And yet there are times I've caught myself saying, God, I, I feel like I love him so much that if he were taken from me, I would be devastated. Now, I, there is sadness when someone's taken from you, something is, is absent from your life. But would I turn away from God if I lost him? And I say, no, God. Before he was ever born, you saved me. Before I was ever saved, you made me. There's no God like you. I will still worship you. See, Tim Keller, a pastor in, in New York, said this. good way to determine your gods is, is there something in your life that if it were taken from you, you would use, lose your desire to live? Because that is a God. That is a God. There is only one God. Can you truly say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, There's nothing I desire more than you. Is God enough? And see, here's the connection between uh, these gods and the idols and what we talked about last week, the demonic powers. Idolatry will lead you to serve a lesser and evil God. On the one hand, these are not gods at all. But on the other hand, they are something more than idols and pieces of wood and clay and, and, and metal. Because for the person who says, hey, that's, that's not really a God, it means nothing. That's why Paul could say, if you don't believe that that meat sacrifice to that idol means anything, go ahead and eat it. There's nothing wrong with it. But he says this too. But if you believe it is something, stay away from it. Because you give the idol power. You're the one that gives the idol the power. Because it's not the idol itself that has the power. It's what's behind the idol. The demonic power behind it. See, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul describes 
the devil like this. He is the God of this age. He blinds us to the truth. I want to take you back to an Old Testament passage. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a very interesting passage where Moses is speaking to the people. And he says that they abandoned the God who made them, their creator, and rejected the rock, their savior, their deliverer. He's their creator. He's their deliverer. They rejected him. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. By the way, God is a jealous God. God is angry when there's, when there's other loves in our life, just like a spouse would be angry when someone is flirting with your covenanted mate. There's a jealousy. God is jealous. It says they sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. Now that word in there, false gods, in my New International Version, it, it does not give us the right picture because every other version, I looked at like 20 different versions, says it's not false gods. It's devils and it's demons. That's who they worshiped, devils and demons. The actual word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word for false gods, it's only found two times in the whole Old Testament, is the word diamonian. Diamonian. Sounds a lot like demon, because that's what it is. What he's saying there is idolatry opens the door to demonic activity. Anytime you reject God and the worship of him alone and you cling to another God, basically what you're saying is, I'm not going to worship you anymore. I'm going to worship him, the God of this age. And so when John writes 1 John chapter 5, he tells us that, that Satan is the, the ruler of this world. Everyone, everything's under his control. He goes on in verse 20 to say that, that Jesus came to kind of to win us back, that Jesus came to prove that he is the son of God. And then we come down to the very last verse of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He says, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because idols connect themselves to demonic activity. So I want to ask you, what is a God in your life? What has become an obsession to you? What has taken a place in your life that shouldn't be there, that only God should be there? Write that down on your notes. And then make this decision with the Lord to eliminate that God, to change your behavior, to remove it, to do whatever it takes, to remove that God out of your life so you can truly say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is all I really need because he is, friends. He really is. He's more than enough. He's, he's, more, he's, he's good enough. He's strong enough. He's patient enough. He's wise enough. He can comfort you. He can provide for you. He can protect you. He can save you like nobody else.